Hello and welcome to my weekly discussion with advocate Erin Richards. My name is Michael Apple. We've been discussing all facets of state capture. Now, if you initially think about state capture, it was always the Guptas and then Busasa. And then we started looking at the spokes that make up the state capture wheel. We looked at Bain & Company, the consultancy management firm based in Boston. We looked at their lawyers, Baker McKenzie. And now, advocate Erin Richards... What are we uh, going to be discussing today? It's got to do with where the money flows through. Financial institutions, take it away. I think it's time to turn to the banks. Yeah. Um, you know, Mike, there, there are so many people that are asking what I think is a very key question that unfortunately I don't think was actually adequately dealt with at the Zondo Commission. And that is, how did the money get through the banking system? You know, because at the end of the day, if uh, if you can't get money out of the country, there's no corruption, there's no money laundering. You know, the banks are supposed to be the front line um, to to flag, to investigate uh, money laundering, and to close those accounts um, when they flag suspicious transactions. And unfortunately, we just we just haven't seen that that happen. You know, and if you look at um, at Transnet, for example. Um, and you look at Standard Bank, I mean, well, actually, in Transnet, there were multiple banks, HSBC, Nedbank, Standard Bank, all implicated in, in the illicit deals. So, I mean, yeah, let's start with, with Standard Bank. Let's first start at the, the various statutes that govern the banks. It's the Banking Act, it's the Banks Act, yeah. uh, it's the Financial Intelligence Center Act, it's uh, poker and its preca. Take us through what the responsibilities are on the bank in terms of in terms of that legislation. <laughs> Mike, look, we can speak about that all day. I mean, I think where where we should probably start is the Financial Intelligence Center Act because that yeah. really is the key piece of legislation um, that governs uh, governs um, oversight of of uh, money laundering. Now, what that act does is it establishes the Financial Intelligence Center, which is a center that sits inside National Treasury. Mm-hmm. And it basically has an oversight function over the banks, which are accountable institutions, and which are designated responsibilities to flag and report and ultimately stop money laundering. Now, what that act says, I mean, let's just look at the at the framework of how this is supposed to happen. So when an entity opens a bank account, the bank has a duty under that act to verify that entity. If it's a if it's a company, then they must verify the ownership structure. They must then perform due diligence on that entity and on that account. They must understand the business of their client. And they must then perform ongoing due diligence of those accounts. Now, if the bank suspects um, or finds suspicious transactions, it has a duty under that act to report it to the Financial Intelligence Center. The Financial Intelligence Center is then supposed to investigate, and if it suspects money laundering, it has a variety of powers to temporarily close accounts, to get monitoring orders, to to keep an eye on those accounts. Um, And it then, if if it conducts an investigation and finds out that there's, you know, suspicions of of money laundering, it will then report either to the the South African Reserve Bank or to the National Prosecuting Authority for, for prosecution. Um, The South African Reserve Bank in turn also has oversight functions and uh, it has the ability to instruct banks to close accounts if it suspects money laundering. Mm. 
Mm. Um, so that's the overarching framework that is supposed to operate. But it seems as though, for one or another reason, um, very little or none of this actually happened with these state capture transactions. So the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act is if you have actual knowledge or a reasonable suspicion that something dodgy is going on that you need to report. Um, and that is in terms of, um, that's PRECA, and then POCA, Prevention of Organized Crime Act, is money laundering and the proceeds of crime. Now, as you've pointed out, state capture is not possible without this, the, the proceeds of crime flowing through the bank accounts, often destined uh, for bank accounts and companies outside of our borders. Mm. Now, take us to Ian Stinton. Who is he? He did testify before the state capture inquiry in relation to what exactly? All right. So I just want to pick up on one point that you said, which is which is important, is that the threshold for reporting is very, very low. If the banks even so much as suspect or should reasonably suspect that, um, that the proceeds of illicit funds are coming into their accounts, they have a duty to report. So that threshold is very, very, very low. Um, now picking up on Ian Sinton. Ian Sinton was um, Standard Bank's legal counsel. I don't think he's, he's in that position anymore. No, he's retired. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he was called to the Zondo Commission to give, to give evidence. Um, unfortunately, there was very little by way of explanation in terms of the processes that Standard Bank actually undertook um, in canvassing and looking for red flags in these in these transactions because it's quite obvious that you know they in, in certain c circumstances these accounts that were used to launder money were open for three years four years five years without any interference from standard bank or any of the regulatory authorities now we would have hoped at the commission to see some evidence or to hear an explanation as to why standard bank did not pick up um, on those on those red flags, but that evidence was not forthcoming. Mm. So I was listening to Mr. Sinton's evidence this morning, and he came across very comprehensively in terms of the processes and procedures that financial institutions mm. like Standard Bank are supposed to undertake. And he speaks of a constant monitoring of media reports uh, by an internal team and using Thomson Reuters. Um, to look at any adverse media reports that are coming out about their clients. And he says there is a team that is dedicated uh, to looking at suspicious transactions with regard to using these particular algorithms. He didn't expand on what algorithms these are. Um, but it seems all of that um, didn't really work, did it? Well, either it didn't work or it did work. And the implication of that is that Standard Bank would have turned a blind eye to money laundering. I mean, I'd like to just look at a specific example because I think that, that that'll, be, that'll be helpful. Um, let's just look at the Regiment's McKinsey situation because Standard Bank was involved there. Now, we all know that what happened is between 2012 and 2015. And this is at Transnet. This is a Transnet, yeah. yes, thanks for that. Um, between 2012 and 2015... Um, McKinsey was awarded numerous, I think it was eight contracts by Transnet that totaled in value at about 2.2 billion. McKinsey then partnered with Regiments as their empowerment partner and paid to Regiments 30% of that 2.2 billion. 
from there, 55% of that 30%, 30% was laundered out of regiments' accounts to a variety of other accounts. Um, primarily, uh, I think if I recall correctly, most of those funds went to a, a, um, an entity called Homex, which was a shelf company. Um, and from there, the majority of funds went into an entity called Bapu Trading, also a shell company. And from there, the money went cold, disappears, as happens with, with money laundering. Um, now, we know that the money started flowing into the Homex account in about 2014. And we also know that regiments, Homex, and Bapu Trading all had accounts with Standard Bank. So in 2014, these these massive deposits of between one to 20 million start going into the Homex account. Um, and that then continues unabated for about three years. And it's not, well, we don't know if it was picked up by, by Standard Bank, but certainly Standard Bank didn't action it. The Financial Intelligence Center didn't action it. The Reserve Bank didn't action it. So this money was being freely laundered from 2014 onwards. We only see Standard Bank pick up on this in 2017 when there are a whole lot of adverse media reports that start coming out in the press in about 2017 around regiments. And at that point, Standard Bank saw fit to call regiments into account, and as I understand, after that, reported the, the matter, and I think closed the accounts. Now, the question is, if they have all these wonderful algorithms, and they have this team that's dedicated and constantly monitoring as it's supposed to do under legislation, and if they all have this fantastic understanding of the legislation that governs them. What were they doing between 2014 and 2017? I don't buy the explanation that this was a mere a mere oversight. Um, but unfortunately we don't have we don't have the answers. You know, we, those those questions weren't asked at the Zondo Commission and, and, and we didn't receive any um, any clarity. But I I also just want to say, Mike, that something that I I find repulsive actually is the fact that Standard Bank, on their own version, waited until there were negative media reports. In other words, the trigger for Standard Bank was when it was going to incur reputational risk. That suddenly was worthy of interrogation. Mm. But what of all the red flags that they must have picked up on in those other three to four years? What happened to those? Why, why were those not actioned? Well, Mr. Sinton was asked what informed their decision to close uh, Oak Bay and all the Gupta entities' accounts. In They issued them with a two-month notice uh, of intention to terminate on the 6th of April 2016. And his answer was, well, we saw that ABSA Bank had had terminated their, their, uh, their, their bank accounts with the Gupta entities. Mm. That was his first answer he gave. Well, another financial institution did it, and we're governed by the same rules, so we don't want to be guilty of, mm. of anything. And there was something about KPMG there as KPMG well. KPMG had yeah. announced their termination as the auditors of Oak Bay. So, But, I mean, what about all the constant media pressure that has been there? And as you say, you have millions being transferred from regiments into a, a shell company sitting in Hong Kong or Dubai with zero funds, all of a sudden 20 million, and then the next day that money is gone. It is hallmark money laundering. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually that's actually what, what we heard from the head of financial intelligence at the at the Reserve Bank, Mr. Yeah. Mazibuko. Yeah. He said it's actually inexplicable that a bank like Standard Bank did not pick up on these red flags because it is, as you say, hallmark 
money laundering. Mm. Now, if it is true that the banks have these algorithms that are monitoring these transactions, that is definitely something that those algorithms would have picked up on. As mm. you say, when there's a deposit of 20 million into a shell account that has no trading history and all of a sudden it's spirited away within a matter of days into a whole lot of smaller accounts, you know, money laundering signs and red flags don't come clearer than, mm. th than that. And what's also interesting is under the, the Financial Intelligence Center Act that we discussed earlier, there is a section, section 21E, that says that if a bank is unable to perform ongoing due diligence on an account, it is then obliged to terminate the relationship. Now, you would have thought that when these algorithms picked up these strange transactions of 5 million, 19 million, 20 million, whatever, um, this would have triggered the bank into doing due diligence. It would then have found that it couldn't do proper due diligence because how do you do due diligence on a shell company that's used being used for money laundering? Um, and it would then have been statutorily obliged to close the account, which the banks didn't do. So you see the banks failing as the front line to flag and stop money laundering. You see nothing from the financial intelligence center, which is really the 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 high watermark of the of the oversight function. And you also see very little from the Reserve Bank, although I must qualify that because there was um, a, um, a period where um, Homex had an account at Mercantile Bank and Mercantile picked up possible money laundering flows through that account um, as it pertained to an agreement between Transnet and Neotel. Mercantile Bank then flagged that to the South African Reserve Bank, and within a matter of days, that account at Mercantile Bank had been closed. Unfortunately, by that point, around 51 million rand had already been laundered out the country. But the point is, we see that if the reports make it to the Reserve Bank, there is action, which raises the question about whether or not Standard Bank was actually reporting these things properly, bearing in mind that it is an offence not to report as per the statutory obligations. I want to speak about the extraordinary power that financial institutions have. Um, they, you enter into a contractual relationship with a customer or a client, and it's almost there are a lot of T's and C's apply here, and they can can terminate that con contractual relationship if they feel there are sufficient grounds. Just tell me about the the enormous powers actually granted to banks outside of of any legal, well, no, it's within a legal framework, but they are not required to, in a court of law, prove anything if they decide to terminate a contract with you. Mm. Well, okay, so I mean, let's look at circumstances under which a bank can terminate a, a relationship. Technically, my bank could come to me today and say, Aaron, it's been fantastic, but we've decided we no longer want to work with you. Mm. Um, on the law as it currently stands, they don't even owe me an explanation. They can simply just terminate. Um, then there are obviously statutory obligations, like I discussed the, the FICA Act, that oblige banks to close, and the Standard uh, and the South African Reserve Bank also has powers to close accounts. But you are correct that this grants to banks extraordinary powers, and there are there's a there are two sides to that coin. You know, on the one hand, we we want the banks to have the power to shut down accounts, for example, when they suspect money laundering. 
Okay, um, but that power can also be abused, and it can be extremely disadvantageous to individuals and to corporates. Um, you know, a, a, an interesting example is what's happened to to Iqbal Survey. You know, where we see him and basically all entities, even remotely associated with the second Jalo name, having effectively been unbanked by the entire banking system. Now. Whether the individual concern deserves that kind of censure or not is one debate. Um, the fact that the banks actually have that power is another debate, you know, and, and my, my instinct says that we do want the banks to have that power, especially given the fight that we have against money laundering, but it needs to be properly regulated and properly managed. You know, the banks need to be properly reporting to the, to the regulatory authorities. There needs to be proper investigation before accounts are closed. Then there needs to be proper prosecution. But that entire system just seems utterly defunct at the moment. I'll tell you about the flip side of this coin and a very good example is a discussion I had with whistleblower Tembo Maseko. So just to bring everybody up to speed, he is the uh, cabinet spokesperson, the head of the government communication information system who the Guptas approached and said they would like the 600 million in government advertising directed towards their media empire. He said no, he gets fired um, and Essentially, he was designated a politically exposed person, mm. a pep, mm. and the banks would want, they wanted nothing to do with him. He, in the interview I did with him, spoke about how he couldn't get a bank loan. Mm. Now, this is a whistleblower mm. who is not able to access the financial uh, system in South Africa, and he is considered a saint or a whistleblower by society, but he suffers the same fate as the Guptas. Mm. So there is two sides to this coin. Oh yeah, definitely. And what you've said is just such a brilliant um, demonstration of the inequities of the situation, because you also have to look at this and you have to say, well, you know, if you are basically unbanking a whistleblower, um, why haven't you unbanked someone like the Baines, the McKinsey's, the KPMG's, all the people implicated in state capture. There's also a whole lot of negative press around all of them. So, so this just something something to me doesn't doesn't add up, you know. And and I do worry that to a certain extent the banks are playing into a a political agenda. But I mean that's just a you know that's that's a suspicion. But um, you know it it is sourced from from these massive inequities where the banks just seem to at whim decide that they are going to target some politically exposed individuals and companies over others, you know. Um, and and the question is is that right? No, I don't think it is. There needs to be fair and equitable treatment across the board. Are there more questions that need to be asked? The commission has come and gone. We haven't, and I don't think we're going to see the uh, a report specifically mentioning the banks here, but there, there clearly needs to be greater scrutiny of their role. As I say, just another spoke in the state capture wheel. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, I would say that the banks are probably the biggest spoke in, in, in the state capture wheel. Um, you know, the, the fact is, in order for corruption to to um, to be successfully carried out, you need to be able to get the money out of the country. You know, that's basically the bottom line. So if you can't get past the banking system, well, then that's a massive safeguard in your in your favor. So um, do more questions need to be asked? Yes. And I mean, I was hoping that some of those questions would be asked of the Zondo Commission, but as I said, unfortunately, they weren't. One of the biggest questions is to call those implicated banks like Standard Bank and to say, listen, 
how did you miss those red flags? Did you miss them? And how did you miss them? And why did you wait so long to close the account? You know, those are three fundamental questions that, that we need um, answers to. As you say, commissions come and gone. There's nothing stopping our investigative journalists from, from, from asking these questions. And the other massive, massive question, the big link in the chain here is the Financial Intelligence Center. Someone needs to find out what the Financial Intelligence Center was doing with all these reports that were in all likelihood coming to it from the banks and why it was not actioning those reports. Well, we're going to uh, continue this discussion next week. We're not going to let go of the financial institutions and their incredibly important role that, uh, as you explained, it's not possible to spirit millions and billions out of this country. They're not stuffing uh, cash into tog bags. You know, they're getting it across using uh, legal institutional systems that are put in place that the, the sirens should have been going. And if yeah. they were going, why was there any willful blindness mm. on the part of financial institutions? Advocate Aaron Richards, thanks for joining us today.